Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, that would be great. It is near the end of the New Testament. If you go to Revelation, just go back to your left a little bit and you'll find the books of 1 and 2 Peter where we are going to be all fall. And today we're, because of uh, last week we had Jagar come, this week we're doing all of chapter two. It's originally supposed to be two sermons. Most of the commentaries I looked at were three or four uh, chapters or sermons. Uh, most of the sermons I looked at were five or six and one was nine, uh, covering these verses. So we're gonna cover an enormous amount of material uh, and not an enormous amount of time, I hope. Um, so hopefully you have gotten to first Peter uh, chapter 2. As always, listen carefully as this is God's word. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scripture and making us your people. You have brought us once again to the book of 1 Peter to learn about Christ and how he wants us to live. Lord, in your Son are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth which is found in the living and abiding word of God. These are words today about suffering, and we desperately need them. They are good and kind, living and active, enduring and eternal. So open our eyes to see them and to understand them and to believe them and to walk in them. And as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us consider what it means to embrace servanthood as it is found in you. And so we pray, speak through the words of the Apostle Peter this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. I want you to imagine with me uh, that a homeless man walked into a service and interrupted the sermon by saying, I've been wondering since I came in here if what you call following Jesus is the same thing as what he taught. What did he mean when he said, follow me? What do Christians mean by following the steps of Jesus? How would you respond if right before falling on his face and collapsing in front of the whole church, he said, but what would Jesus do? Now, a week later, a pastor, the pastor of that church got up in the pulpit and spoke with considerable hesitation. He told the congregation that this man died. He told them the man's words had really made an impression on him, compelling him to ask a question he had never really asked before. What does following Jesus mean? The pastor then leaned forward and asked everyone to pledge themselves earnestly and honestly for an entire year not to do anything without first asking the question, what would Jesus do? And he added, after asking the question, each one will follow Jesus exactly as he knows how, no matter what the result may be, we propose to follow Jesus' steps as closely and as literally as we believe he taught his disciples to do. So begins the book, In His Steps written by a Kansas newspaper man and part-time pastor named Charles Sheldon. He wrote it in 1896. It started as a series of sermons, was made into articles, and eventually compiled into a book. It sold for 10 cents. 
And in the first three weeks, it sold 100,000 copies. In His Steps became an instant bestseller. And depending on what source you look at, it has sold somewhere between 30 and 50 million copies. It has been made into three different films. And the book describes a year in the life of an American city where everyone in the city, doctors, lawyers, merchants, salespeople, teachers, students, clergy, and newspaper editors, made the question, what would Jesus do, the basis for all their decisions. Although largely forgotten today, it led directly many years and many steps later to the WWJD bracelets that were so popular. <laughs> you may remember these, you can't all see it, but I did post a picture of it in our Facebook group. And uh, you may remember those uh, from about 20 years ago. It was actually a campaign from the late 90s, early 2000s. And of course, WWJD stands for What Would Jesus Do? And it was taken from this book, In His Steps. The book title comes from a verse in our passage today, 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Now since we're doing the whole chapter today, uh, which as I said could easily be multiple sermons, we're going to touch on a number of topics um, to include worship, the church, obeying governing authorities, how we should behave, following Christ, along with persecution and suffering, and probably a couple more that I missed. However, I think the main point of the chapter is how the church is being built into the new temple of God and how Christians have been given a new identity in Christ. With that said, I'm going to focus in on two of the emphasis that Peter gives us, serving and suffering, and see how they affect everything else. We're not going to focus in on the WWJD acrostic so much, but as you go through this, we probably need some new acrostics. How about WDJD? What did Jesus do? Because he died in your place, taking your condemnation and the curse that was rightfully yours. Charles Sheldon, the author of In His Steps, was one of the forerunners of what came to be known as the social gospel movement. There's not much in his book about the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. However, the church's role here is not to reform society, but to share the gospel that saves souls. And then those saved souls living out the gospel will bring about societal change. So the reform of society is the duty of individual Christians, much more so than it is the duty of the church. We still aim for that, but as the duty of the believer, uh, more so than of the church as a whole. And second, we need to ask WWID, what will I do? Because Jesus paid for your salvation, but you still have to surrender to his lordship, submit to his word, and be saved. And once you're saved, then you are to serve. And Peter promises that there'll be some suffering with that. Think about what it means to serve. A volunteer 
picks and chooses when and even whether to serve. And I hesitated about putting this in because the church runs on volunteers. But a servant serves no matter what. A volunteer serves when it's convenient. A servant serves out of commitment. Someone once said it, well, I tried to look this up. I couldn't find who said it originally. The servant does what she is told when she's told to do it. The volunteer does what he wants to do when he feels like doing it. It's probably a good summary. The next thing we need to understand is the Old Testament background, the Old Testament context for this chapter. Peter here is quoting uh, a number of Old Testament verses, but most prominently Exodus 19, Isaiah 43 and 53, and Hosea 1 and 2. And if you remember, think about those three books. Exodus is the story of God's people being freed from slavery and suffering. Isaiah was written to a people suffering in exile who've been promised both a return to their land and a coming Messiah, described as the suffering servant. And Hosea was written to a people who have abandoned God for idolatry and immorality, but whom God will call back to himself because he's faithful to his promises and keeps his covenant. So all these books are addressed to people who are experiencing suffering and exile and abandonment. All things that God's people in Peter's time are dealing with and all things that God's people in our time are dealing with as well. So let's turn to our text today, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll start with uh, the sacrificial church. The sacrificial church, verses 1 through 12. So if you have a sermon outline, that would be the first blank there. You can download those outlines um, from the church website. So again, verses 1 through 12. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
So this section has the key verses, notably verses 9 and 10, that show us how the church is being built into the new temple of God and the Christians are given a new identity in Christ. The Apostle Peter is reminding everyone there's this great building process going on. God is building you up like living stones into his temple. Well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, you have to notice that he calls Christ a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. When Peter calls Jesus a living stone, he's speaking of his resurrection. Uh, Jesus' crucifixion was humanity's verdict, but his resurrection was God's vindication. And throughout his life, death, and resurrection, God made him to be both Savior and Lord, exalted him to the highest place, and gave him all rule and authority. Humanity cast him away as an insignificant pebble, but God exalted him as the cornerstone in verses 6 and 7. And Peter uses this image that comes from Psalm 118, of a stone for a building that is laid first and by which all other stones are oriented. The cornerstone sets out the direction for the building. Isaiah 28 uh, explains it further. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who is laid as the foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. So we see the cornerstone serves as the foundation stone. It's the baseline from which everything else is measured. And then Peter says, as you come to him, He's saying, he's your mark, he's your measure, he's your baseline, he's your starting point. And then he lets us know that he's already been through what you're going through now or what you may go through in the future. It says he was rejected by men, just as you have been or may be rejected and excluded by people. But then he says, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious just as you are precious in the sight of God who chose you. And since Christ is the cornerstone, he's telling us you have to see yourselves as additional living stones, being connected to him, the living stone. That is, instead of being a, a simple group of excluded social outcasts, suffering in exile, unsure about our relationship with God and why he would even consider taking on sinners like us. We are to find our identity as individuals and our identity as a church in the relationship we have with Christ, the cornerstone upon which our life is built. So the first part of your new identity in Christ is being like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. The second part of our new identity is being a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now you have to understand in the context of Jewish history what it meant to be a priest. They had special responsibilities in the Old Testament. They were the most honored men in the land. They wore special garments. They had a special calling. They had special access to holy places and holy objects that the average person never saw. They offered up prayers on behalf of others and they made the sacrifices 
to atone for the sins of the people. You were very reverent around the priests. Now, some of you, I know, come from a Catholic background. And so you know what I'm talking about. You are always careful how you handled yourself around the priest. And now Peter is telling them. Remember, these people are scattered. They're exiled. They're all over Asia Minor. They're living in tents and they're in caves and they're in hiding, living in basements. And he says, that guy in the next tent, that woman in the next cave, that person hiding in the basement with you, he's a priest. She's a priest. You can go into that holy place unobstructed. You have special access to God. You're a priest. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Only priests can do that. But Jesus says, now you can do that. You're a priest. Now we see in these verses that there's two kinds of people here. There's those who believe in God and who are being built up for his purposes, and those who reject Christ build themselves up and wind up stumbling over everything he says. But in either case, you can't deny that the stone is there, the cornerstone being Christ. This stone is either your guide to having a life that makes sense, even when it's not easy. It certainly wasn't easy for any of the people Peter's writing to. And it provides you with an eternal hope that will never disappoint. Or this stone is your obstacle, your stumbling block, the rock you trip over, the stone you keep running into and can't get away from until you decide what to do with it. And once again, Peter wants you to know who you are. He's laying out, there's two paths here. And he wants to reinforce that if you go on the right path with Christ as the cornerstone, then what God says is true about you. He wants to reinforce your identity in Christ. So he reminds you, look at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I can't help but mention I love the King James Version of this verse because instead of his own possession, it says you're a peculiar people. <laughs> you know, looking around this morning, it's not inappropriate. <laughs> but these are special names for God's people. Royal priesthood, holy nation, his own possession. They all come to us from the Old Testament, multiple uh, times and places, but most prominently in Exodus 19, where Moses is addressing the nation of Israel, preparing them to enter the promised land. And he says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter keeps drawing from the Old Testament. These are high and exalted titles repeatedly used in the Old Testament to describe God's people. And Peter is saying these titles now apply to God's new community, the church. Now, to be honest, we don't generally know a whole lot about kings and priests. 
We live in a country without kings, and we attend a church without priests. But those are two of the highest offices in the Old Testament, along with the prophet. It's the third high office. And of course, the book of Hebrews teaches us that Christ is now our ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And we are becoming like him, being conformed to his image. So we are now people with unique and special privileges, with a massive status change, living before a holy and sovereign God who by his grace has made us his people forever. We've been elevated to the greatest place in God's kingdom, those who will be with Jesus and who will minister God's grace to others. Next, Peter says, you're to be built up because, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is taken directly from the prophet Hosea. We see that in Hosea chapter 1. Uh, the uh, woman there has two children. And in chapter 1 we read, She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them all. In verse 9, the Lord said they have another uh, child, the son, call his name Not My People. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Uh, those of you planning to have more children probably don't want to pick these names here, um, no mercy, or not my people. Um, but Peter's telling us all of this is now reversed. And it's all reversed because in Hosea 2, we have the promise of God. And he says, in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And that's still true. You used to be without God and without hope in this world, but now God has poured out his mercy on you. You are objects of God's favor, the recipients of God's love, his very own possession, people who belong to Jesus. That is a promise of God, and you can take him at his word. So you are being built up into Christ as living stones, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his treasured possession, and we are to respond out of gratitude for the love and acceptance and mercy that he has now showered upon us. Third, if we have to back up a little bit, back to verse 9, we see that we're being built up because, it says, verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're now a witness of what God can do. You used to live in darkness, now you live in the light. You didn't know where you were going, and you tripped over the stumbling stone and the rock of offense, but now you use that rock as the foundation of your life. And because God has done this for you and God has changed your life, we see verse 3, you have tasted that the Lord is good, so now we're able to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. People need to know that God's not mad at them, that he loves them with an everlasting love, that he wants to shower them with his mercy, just as he did with you, just as he continues to do with you. And what Peter wants from the church and what God wants from his people are hearts and minds that are so focused on him, 
with attitudes and actions based on love and on grace, uh, so much so that it's obvious to everyone about around us. I mean, that's the main point of the chapter. The church is being built into a new temple of God and Christians are given a new identity in Christ. So much so that it's obvious to everyone about us. We are to look different, be different, sound different, act different, think different. And while that's the main point, that's actually the easy part. See, then Peter gets to the hard part. He gets really to the application. And things get difficult. Because this new building, this new identity, leads to us becoming suffering servants. Verses 13 to 20. We're the suffering servants. Picking up verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Think about this for a minute. Look at what Peter just wrote to these people. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Doesn't Peter remember who he's writing to? These are the people who fled persecution. These are the people who lost homes and jobs and members of their family. Except all authority? The authority here is Nero. That man is an insane demagogue. Nero is the cause of the persecution of Christians. The sand of the Roman Colosseum is colored red with their blood. And incredibly, Peter says, submit to it, accept their authority. Notice Peter doesn't tell them to renounce their faith or disobey God. He doesn't tell them they can't flee persecution. He's telling them it appears that it's not their job to fight back or to overthrow the emperor. He's reminding them they're here to build another kingdom, a kingdom that follows a different king. And we're to live in this world even when it's cruel and unfair because our true allegiance is not to this world, but to the kingdom of God. And yes, there are times when you have to disobey the laws of man in order to obey the laws of God. Peter himself did that in Acts chapter 5. But to be honest, those times are few and far between. There are some issues that demand you follow this Acts 5 principle of civil disobedience. But they don't include not respecting your elected leaders or not obeying the overwhelming majority of our laws. What Peter wants these people to realize is that when they recognize the existing authority, couple that with a willingness to set aside their own personal desires, then that shows they're deeply depending on God while still living in this world. 
Now, clearly, that's a lot easier said than done. Which is why Peter tells us that our lives carry an impact far greater than we realize. Because our lives as followers of Christ are so different from what the world normally sees. He says our good lives should silence those who falsely accuse us. Verse 15, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, now we get to the real uh, meat of the issue. How are these people supposed to act when they've been treated as badly and unfairly as they have? Their lives have been dramatically changed and not for the better. One commentator writes, centuries later, Christianity pervaded the culture and overcame slavery and vicious persecutions, but that didn't happen in the first century when this was written, which is a good lesson for us regarding God's timing versus our timing even in the face of adversity. While God certainly commands us to be salt and light and bring about justice and change in our culture, his ultimate priority is still changing the human heart. Remember that our being light in the darkness is for the purpose of bringing Christ to people and changing people, not in a mass society, but one-on-one and face-to-face. If we're gonna be light in the darkness, then sometimes we're going to have to live in the darkness. And sometimes that darkness seems unfair. And that darkness can bring unwanted changes and unexpected situations and unfair treatment into our lives. It's not like this doesn't happen in our lives already. Has anyone ever had an uncaring or ungrateful boss? looking to see if Frank puts his hand up. (laughs) Has anyone here ever had to meet an unexpected deadline? Has anyone ever had to deal with an unfair uh, situation filled with unreasonable people? I have talked with you. Most of those scenarios fit most of your lives. So there is a lot of truth for you in these verses. And what Peter is trying to get us to understand is that fighting back and getting even are common reactions that seeking revenge is a sign of having self-appointed authority. And that is unacceptable for someone who claims to live under the authority of Christ. We're supposed to stand in contrast to those around us, which means our attitude is to be one of love and acceptance, and our focus is to be towards God, not our circumstances. And when you live like that, not blaming others, not throwing yourself a pity party, not denying the difficulty, but accepting it and loving the people anyway, then that's putting grace on display. And that's what Peter's telling us to do here. That's what he's talking about when he tells us that suffering is part and parcel of the normal Christian life, which now brings us to our most famous verse. Verses 21 and 25 and the, shep- uh, the suffering shepherd. The suffering shepherd. Verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. No one suffered more than Jesus did. No one faced more um, unfair treatment. He was regularly misunderstood, slandered, hated, and mistreated, and finally they killed him. But what about the Apostle Peter, who's writing this? He was beaten and threatened and flogged and imprisoned for sharing the message about Jesus. The man about whom the Bible says, back in Acts 5, when the council had called in the apostles, they beat them, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This man, Peter, who knew suffering, says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Because he says, It is at the cross that we find healing for our wounds, both visible and invisible, inside and out. It is at the cross that we find forgiveness for our sins. It is at the cross that we find meaning in the midst of a society gone mad. For Peter, following Christ all the way to the cross has become the paradigm for the Christian life. And now it's all starting to make sense to these persecuted people hiding from Rome all over Asia Minor. All this is happening because it will enable them to be like Christ and to bring glory to God. It will enable them and us to live for the glory of God no matter what we do or what we endure. The purpose in life for the follower of Christ is to live as light in dark places, to bring glory and honor to the name of Christ, not to be treated well or to have a life that's easy or even to be happy, as good as those things might be. Because that's not what 1 Peter 2.21 says that God has called us to. God has called us to follow Jesus. And look at verse 23 at what Jesus did when he faced unjust treatment. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He left his case in the hands of God. Not easy, but a good thing to do. How different would your day be if when you're facing unwanted change or unfair treatment, you prayed like this? Lord, this is a hard moment for me. I'm having a tough time today. Here I am again dealing with this unreasonable person, this person who treats me unfairly. Lord, help me. I leave my case in your hands. Here's my struggle. You can have it. Please protect me in this. Give me the wisdom and the self-control I need. Help me to do the right thing. That's what Peter's telling us to do here. And in reality, this has happened over and over again in biblical history. Just look at Job, Joseph, and David. Job 
Although the Bible says that he was blameless and upright and had never taken unfair advantage of anyone, lost all his land, servants, possessions, and above all, ten children. Talk about unwanted changes. Joseph, or Job had them tenfold. Or look at Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery. Talk about the original dysfunctional family. They were jealous of him. He never asked to be his father's favorite, but he was, and the other brothers couldn't stand it, so they shipped him off to Egypt. Talk about an unexpected situation. Joseph had it in spades. Or take David. After he killed Goliath, he became super popular amongst the people of Israel. He also became the object of King Saul's rage. David had only done good for Saul. But Saul became so jealous of David's popularity that he hunted him down and tried to have him killed for 10 years. Talk about unfair treatment. David lived in it for a decade. Unwanted changes, unexpected situations, unfair treatment was part of God's plan for Job and for Joseph and for David. And it's actually part of God's plan for each of us because it enables us not only to put grace on display, but also to live as Jesus did. Think of us because David refused to take vengeance on King Saul that we remember his story today. It's because Joseph was so willing to forgive his brothers that we admire him today. It's because Job didn't waver in his steadfast belief in a, lo belief in a loving God despite all the unfair changes that had hit him that were impressed by his patience and by his faith today. We can expect the same treatment from the world that those in Peter's day experienced. Jesus taught us that our identification with him will mean being hated. If the world persecuted Jesus, we can be certain it will persecute us. Servants are not above their master. In parts of the world today, this means imprisonment and even death. Currently in the United States, we aren't facing imprisonment or death for our faith. But Jesus' words regarding the cost of identifying with him still ring true. Holding to Jesus and biblical convictions can cost you a promotion, an election, or a lawsuit. Confronting expressive individualism and advocating for God's vision in the most intimate matters of human life can get you demonized and vilified as a hateful bigot. Now, truth be told, some Christians invite these labels with behavior that is less than winsome and wise. But so many believers with a humble and compassionate posture are met with hostility when they verbalize their convictions. And we're not supposed to be shocked by that. Jesus did not pull a bait and switch on us. He was clear about this right from the very start. And if we hunger for our own glory, or we draw back out of fear of man, and that tempts us to privatize our faith in order to preserve our own honor before others, then we've lost sight of the worth and value and preeminence of Jesus, and we have valued our reputation above his. 
our failure to unashamedly align with Jesus on the most sensitive matters of our day through fear of losing face betrays a gross underestimation of the worth and value of Jesus. When we avoid taking Christ-honoring positions on whatever the lightning rod issues of the day are, so as to manage our public relations, we have overvalued our relationship with people and undervalued our relationship with Jesus. We've lost sight of how precious Jesus is to the Father and the honor that God has bestowed upon him. But we've also lost sight of the honor that God promises to those who share his view of Jesus. There are real and lasting consequences to our response to Jesus. Peter cites Isaiah 8:14, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Peter uses this verse to describe Jesus as the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, by which he means, listen to me very carefully now, that Jesus can become an occasion for sin. Here's the point. Jesus presents us with an opportunity to experience the greatest rescue, a rescue from sin and judgment into the promise of glory. But he also presents us with the opportunity for the greatest ruin. We can experience the greatest salvation or commit the greatest sin, that of rejecting the chosen and precious Son of God. God means for his Son, this chosen and precious cornerstone, to be polarizing, to divide the people to those who know Jesus and those who don't. And when loyalties conflict, Jesus demands that he take priority. He draws clear lines. Sometimes those lines can even divide a household. And our post-Christian context that we live in today has awakened us to his polarizing nature. We can come to him to re for rescue, or we can stumble over him to our own ruin. We can embrace him as the suffering servant and know his salvation and become suffering servants ourselves, or we can take offense at him and reject him to our shame which is what the world actually expects us to do. And it is when we act the opposite of what the world expects that we find that we're trusting in the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is then that we actually believe by his wounds you have been healed. It is then that we eagerly return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When confronted by the vicious spirit of the age, we're to respond with grace and with love as suffering servants of the suffering servant. That's what it means to follow in his steps and to become who Jesus is calling us to become. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. 
Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to see your demands on our lives. Sometimes we still act as people who think following in his steps is too hard. And yet you promise to be the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Grant that we may live as people who reflect your grace and love, even towards those who bring unwanted changes or unexpected situations or unfair treatment into our lives. And work in each of our hearts this fall as we learn from the Apostle Peter to embrace our status as exiles, as strangers in a strange land, as those who have tasted that the Lord is good and who have become a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, draw us ever closer to the one who is our example, that we might follow in his steps. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as the suffering servant, lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.